Choose your princess wisely. A Good Omens multi-voice podfic, written by Sir Wolf. Chapter 1 A Seventh Son of a Seventh Son and A Serpent Demon in an Enchanted Castle To call Aziraphale's last mission to secure the family's fortune a failure was, in his opinion, grossly unfair. He turned a tidy profit after travel expenses were accounted for, and the village had been ever so relieved to be rid of their brownie infestation. He'd also been gifted with two bottles of an excellent vintage of wine, a tin of very fine sweets, and a charming new scarf to replace the one that had been literally eaten in the course of his quest. Yes, but a tiny profit isn't a fortune. You can't have a fortune without a fortune. Sandalfon chidingly points out from across his meticulously ordered desk in his richly spartan office. Aziraphale, travel mud still clinging to his second best travel gear, half his curls frizzled from the bonfire and fingernails in an absolute state can only mutely stare at his third eldest brother. He feels quite sure the cold glare of the mage lamp hanging from the ceiling is going to bore a hole into his brain via his left eye socket. Surely you're not doing so poorly. He tries, voice still hoarse from the shouted incantations he'd had to lop at the manticore he'd run across in the woods on the way home. It's not about how we're doing now, Aziraphale. Gabriel adds, with an overly enthusiastic lean, from where he's standing with perfect posture next to Sandalfon's desk. Aziraphale isn't sure he's ever seen his second eldest brother so much as slouch since he reached majority. A fortune is about securing our future. He spreads his hands out and swivels a bit to indicate the room. This doesn't come from nothing, you know. The messenger name really means something in this corner of the world. People look up to us, depend on us. If we lose status, we lose more than just our ability to take care of each other. He squints with heavy meaning. We lose the ability to take care of all those people down in the valley. Aziraphale immediately feels guilty. Not, as he is sure his brother is hoping for, because he is worried about letting down his family and neighbours, but because he is so bloody tired and drained that he feels he isn't dredging up the proper amount of guilt in the first place. Of course, naturally. He capitulates with a weak smile, because he judges it the quickest way out of this conversation and into a steaming hot bath in a dim room. Forgive me. Still a bit road-weary, that's all. Gabriel bobs his head sympathically and, after taking the cue, so does Sandalfon. I'll bet. Go. Rest. You've earned it. Uriel doesn't have any time-sensitive leads at the moment anyway. Gabriel beams at him and then holds out an arm to drape over his shoulder 
as he leads Aziraphale back to the door. You know, you should really keep up a routine when you're at home between quests. He points out, not for the first time. Aziraphale grits his teeth in a parody of a smile and keeps his eyes fixed forward as his brother opens the door for him. I keep saying you should come running with me. Keep off that holiday weight. It should make those manticores easier to manage, huh? Oh, and don't forget to re-imbue the armory, wards, and the estate runes first thing tomorrow. Don't want those lights to go out? <laughs> he laughs jovially, even as he's slamming the door behind Aziraphale, leaving him in the overly bright, echoing hallway. Aziraphale is just exhausted enough that he can't help the reflexive face he makes at the gleamingly polished heavy oak door. But then good sense returns, and he darts glances up and down the hall to make sure none of the servants or, gods forbid, one of his other siblings saw him. Luck is on his side for the moment. The hallway is barren. Everyone else caught up in their own late afternoon business. Then he thinks to himself sourly as he trudges to his room. Even shattered, he still reflexively dribbles a thimbleful of magic to clean the confetti drift of dried mud flaking from his person. He wouldn't want to put out the servants. Being lucky is the whole reason his family pins such hopes on him. Being a seventh son of a seventh son is, as his siblings liked to remind him at every opportunity, a great responsibility. It's also a right pain in the ass. The next morning finds him snugly ensconced under two lap blankets in his favorite wingback chair, drawn up as close to the fire as feasible without endangering his house slippers to stray embers. There's a plate of fresh pastries and a mug of cocoa from the kitchens at his elbow, and a new book he'd picked up on his travels in his hand. And he has a record of something soothing playing softly in the background. It is his first day back home after over a month away and he is quite looking forward to spending every last minute of it in this exact position, bearing breaks for meals, of course. Naturally, that's when Gabriel barges into his study without knocking, waving a pamphlet over his head triumphantly. Pack your bags, Azurafail, he crows. This is the chance we've been waiting for since you gave away the golden goose with Princess Katerina. Honestly, you turn down an offer of a firstborn daughter's hand in marriage one time and no one will ever let you live it down. He wants to say, Gabriel, that's really not a fair characterization of the events. We were fundamentally incompatible. Or quite possibly... I still brought home an entire wagon full of gold. How could you lot have possibly spent it all already? Or even... Sod off, you wanker. I'm resting. 
Unfortunately, the most he can manage is a week. I haven't unpacked them yet. It's handled. Uriel draws as they trail in after Gabriel, sparing a brief, miffed glare at the back of their elder brother's head, likely for upstaging what was undoubtedly their discovery. I knew you wouldn't take care of your things properly, and took matters into my own hands. I had the servants turn out your bags last night while you were wallowing in the bath. They are already repacked with fresh clothes, and I've ordered travel provisions from the kitchen. Gabriel rounds on Uriel with a manic grin. Oh, excellent job, Uriel. I can always depend on you to look out for the family's best interests. He casts a significant look back over his shoulder at Aziraphale, before pivoting his entire body around to face him. Behind Gabriel's back, Aziraphale sees Uriel briefly rather eyes to the ceiling. What's this about? He asks, hearing the testiness in his voice, but unable to dredge up enough familiar goodwill in the moment to bury it. Gabriel levels him with a disappointed tilt of his head, but doesn't comment on his tone. There's an enchanted castle west in the Hellion Slopes, and apparently it comes with a prince looking for a bride or bridegroom to free him of a dark phase curse. That is... Aziraphale trails off, baffled. That is terribly specific, brother. Uh, let me see that. He reaches up, and Gabriel obligingly hands over the parchment he's been wielding. Apparently the prince drained his magic to send out the missives to the four corners of the land. They were raining from the sky in the village square. Gabriel enthuses. A right nuisance. Uriel mutters. Taking up the bulk of the page is a lovely artist's depiction of a fantastically romantic and fantastically huge castle tucked away in a bit of charming forest with mountains looming in the background. Below the drawing is printed in bold script. Wanted. A brave soul to free a lonely prince from his unjust, beastly imprisonment. Reward. A loving bridegroom and an enchanted castle. There's a little asterisk next to the bit about beastly imprisonment, which leads to some fine print at the bottom of the page, with a disclaimer about the dark fakers owning to a bit of bad luck and misspent youth with the assurance that the curse is non-transferable, and breaking it will not anger the High Court. I see, he says finally, when he realizes both Gabriel and Uriel are staring at him expectantly. You want me to marry a beast? Gabriel's mouth flattens. I want you to take this God's blessed opportunity to secure your family's future for good. Think of it. No more questing. You can be as lazy as you want all the time. He beams and clasps his hands together, shaking them up and down in entreaty. Think of the good we can do with the resources of an enchanted castle at our disposal. We could feed and clothe the masses. 
Aziraphale thinks his brother is making quite a lot of assumptions based off what is, frankly, a deeply suspicious flyer. Michael sends his encouragement. He had to leave on business in the next village, but he's looking forward to seeing your success. Gabriel says, going so far as to clasp Aziraphale gamely by the shoulder, where he's still sitting in the chair. With his brother looming over him, the heat from the fire suddenly feels stifling. Well, if Michael is excited... He trails off, because really, that's all that needs saying. Michael is the head of the family now that Mom has sailed off to the new continent in retirement. If his eldest brother expects him to go, Aziraphale really hasn't much of a choice. Well, nothing for it, he supposes, and reluctantly sets his book beside his pastries and cocoa, growing stale and cold respectively, and starts to lever himself out of his cosy chair. He has grave doubts that this quest will really go any better than the fiasco with Princess Katharina. Aziraphale has found most partners find his sort of affection lacking in the proper amount of passion. But at least he can see what's at the root of this flyer. And if there truly is a poor, lonely beast looking for a bit of companionship, well, Aziraphale can see about getting his curse sorted and maybe recommend one of his less off-putting siblings as a workaround solution. Raphael is charming enough. Yes, there might be a way to help both the poor creature and his family in one go. And perhaps Aziraphale might finally earn himself an uninterrupted day of relaxation in the bargain. Crowley lounges on the seat of his throne and admires one of the copies of the flyer the imp had left with him before beginning their distribution work. The witch had really outdone herself with the artwork and the duplication spell. She'd rolled her eyes at the copy he'd dictated to her, but he'd reminded her that he'd been conning people into quests since before she was a twinkle in her grandmother's eye, and he knew what would sell. And besides, along with the ingredients for the spell to create a human-shaped corporation for him to inhabit, she would be getting a healthy cut of the treasures he'd be collecting. Trust me, he'd hissed, tapping his tail impatiently on the paper, where she'd been protesting adding the asterisks. People love a good fine print. Makes it look real official. Besides, you have to disclose at least a bit about your curse if you don't want to scare off absolutely everyone. Anathema had given him a deeply judging look, but complied. I don't think I like the quality of hero you're going to get coming out of this as it is. The desperate, gullible kind, he'd assured her. Ready to not look too closely at the details in return for the possibility of untold riches. 
Details like the complete lack of a curse? She drawled as she added the last flourishes with her quill and blew a bit of magical will over the paper to set the ink. Lack of opposable thumbs and the digestive system incompatible with alcohol is a heinous curse. He'd protested, arching his neck up and inventing a bit of a hood for his form to flare at her in indignation. You humans don't know what a sweet gig you've got. Her look was so flatly unimpressed that he'd had to fight the urge to slink. Anyway, what do judgmental urban witches know about running a con, he thinks to himself as he oozes to the floor to do another sliver-through in preparation for all the heroes he's expecting to begin arriving in the next few days. As he winds through the front rooms, he hisses out occasional demonic commands to the decor, adjusting things here and there, so the ambience has the right feel of lightly abandoned without slumping into outright derelict. Honestly, the actual, recently uncursed prince loaning it to him had done a pretty bang-up job of preservation while he was languishing, so Crowley doesn't have much to improve upon. Crowley had done him a good turn by tempting the young woman who'd blundered into the rose garden to look past the drilling fangs and persistent wet dog smell and considered taking a walk on the wild side. In return, the prince had promised use of the castle if the curse was broken. He'd been so sloppily in love by the end that he'd even held up his end of the bargain. The pair was currently taking a holiday in the south to visit her family. Frankly, Crowley gave it even odds whether the blush of young love would survive not only the road trip and judgmental in-laws, but the prince's transformation from a huge, powerful beast creature back to a rather, sure I guess, young man. He's in a portrait gallery, looking for a painting that it won't take a literal miracle to adjust enough to pass off as his handsome true form. Honestly, wicked chins and unnervingly close-set eyes for generations. He's seriously hoping it was true love and not just the rush of discovering a new king fueling the woman's devotion. If she breaks off the engagement, will the poor bastard be recursed? Though, in that case... A return to fur might breathe new life into the relationship. When he hears a hesitant Hello! echoing from the grand entrance. Shit! He hisses to himself and ribbons his way back to the back entrance of the throne room. He has just enough time to coil up on a seat before the door creaks open and a head of frantically curling white hair around the edge. Anyone at home? The man asks in a sort of posh bastard tones of one of the gentry. Crowley eyes him up critically. Gentry are typically gullible, which is a point in his favor, but also prone to backstabbing if there's even a hint that they might not come out the other side of the deal with their promised fortune. Not that Crowley holds that against them in particular. 
he is out to con the poor sort out of quite a bit of hard work and luck for a much smaller than advertised reward as the man steps fully into the room light-coloured eyes flitting around the dim room crawley gets a good look at his outfits and recalculates gentry but wearing extremely practical adventuring clothing even if the material is higher quality than usual thick cloth trousers tucked into sturdy calf-high boots long-sleeved tunic topped with a short leather jerkin a leather bracer on his left forearm not as one might immediately suppose to aid in use of a bow the last said about aziraphale's attempts to achieve weapons mastery outside of a hard-won but tragically utilitarian competence with a dagger and short sword the better he simply finds braces inset with magically enhanced steel plates far more practical and stylish than lugging about a shield and a thick bag with several deep pouches and at least one obvious sheath dagger with a utilitarian-looking steel grip regretfully it's considered unconscionably rude to refit a precious family heirloom gifted unto you by a grateful mother in thanks for being reunited with her nearly decursed child with a hilt that carries a bit more whimsy the color palette is in browns and whites likely the better to hide stains or submit to bleaching while the leatherwork is prettily stitched it's visibly broken in and the clothwork is unadorned and bearing a few spots of discreet patching it's the sort of ensemble crowley has come to expect from what he thinks of as professional questers they tend to be a bit savvier than the odd hero freshly set out from home add that to the clear markers of age on the man's face that suggests that he's not only professional but tenured and crowley's fairly certain his first potential mark is a bust he's considering a subtle fade into the magically enhanced shadows and a hasty exit stage left when the man's gaze finally lands on a throne and his eyes widen oh are you the cursed prince he asks tone dripping with sympathy you poor dear he exclaims pacing a few steps further into the room before stopping and folding his hands primly across his belly well i received your flyer if you're looking for help, I would be delighted to see what I can do to assist. Never mind. He's perfect. Crowley weaves his hat in what he's been assured by several acquaintances is a very pathetic-looking manner and performs a sorrowful flick of his tongue. I am he, yes, he says gravely a fairy from the court of night cursed me for trespassing her garden that i must crawl on my belly like a low beast until i complete seven mystical tasks in her service but alas in this form my powers are very few and to complete the tasks she set i am doomed before i start without a helpmeet 
the man's eyes narrow in contemplation what are these tasks are there any stipulations in the curse that require marriage are we working against a time limit or must things be completed in a certain order the questions are delivered in crisp rapid-fire fashion uh crowley hatches surprised into dropping the melodious cadence he'd been adopting i've got a list no particular order and no hard deadlines though i am anxious to get back to my true form as quickly as possible obviously and i mean magic castles usually come with a prince or princess usually being the operative word he thinks to himself yes of course but it doesn't seem as though marriage is a criteria in breaking the curse if i were to help you i could designate a proxy to collect the reward a proxy he demands incredulous i have a large family the man explains with a shrug if you were to marry one of my siblings i would still benefit from the reward and you would have several more chances for a happy match hold on are you bargaining yourself out of a royal title right now crowley asks a touch cross he's feeling rather on his back oil in this exchange so far and he doesn't like it one bit being a prince sounds like an awful lot of work the man counters with a brief grin it might be worth it for the right partner but really my dear fellow what if we don't get on it wouldn't be much of a reward then would it oh he's practical and a bit of a bastard crowley kind of likes him already shame he's going to fleece him nearly blind i suppose that is true he allows carefully festooning his delivery with princely airs again perhaps we should revisit the topic once we have completed the tasks so long as the reward is remanded to either myself or one of my siblings i'll be quite content the man says agreeably and then sweeps a stiff-looking bow i am aziraphale messenger of haven in the north the name rings a bell he thinks he's heard of a professional hero with an odd name rambling around the northern and eastern regions over the past few decades i am prince anthony crowley lies tell me aziraphale of haven are you prepared to pledge yourself to my cause to do whatever it takes to help free me from this wretched curse only i dare not think what would befall me if your courage should fail part way and i was abandoned to the wilds yes you are just a bit of a thing aren't you aziraphale agrees sympathetically crowley bites back a rude retort he's trying to craft an image here right well are you prepared don't you want to know my qualifications first aziraphale counters with what crowley is fairly certain is censure in his voice if he were capable of dramatic size he'd give one 
As it is, he's a bit curt when he replies. Sure, let's hear them then. The man straightens imperceptibly. A feat, really, since from what Crowley can tell, he was already standing ramrod straight. I am a seventh son of a seventh son, so I have a fair amount of luck. And owing to several generations of uh, diplomacy with the day court, I have a fair amount of magic. I have been questing for um, quite a while, and in that time I have broken eight royal curses and reversed roughly a baker's dozen animal transformations. Before we enter into any sort of formal arrangement, I would like to hear the nature of the quests. But, provided there aren't any particular requirements I'm incapable of fulfilling, I should think I'll be quite capable of resolving your situation. Crowley is, reluctantly, impressed. Feyblood and a seventh son status is a potent combination. Honestly, if he's as accomplished as he claims, Crowley is surprised he hasn't heard any ballads about him. Maybe it's down to not being able to easily rhyme anything with a mouthful like Aziraphale. Truly, you sound like a worthy champion, he says. And it is indeed wise to desire to know more of what is being asked of you. He admits because it's true, and it would be a bit suspicious if he were to insist they rush right out. Honestly, he's not expecting to complete all seven errands Anathema listed with Justice Guy. Burning out heroes will just add to the mystique of the curse he's advertising, and there's no saying the next hero has to know that it wasn't always six mystical tasks or five mystical tasks to complete, depending on how enterprising this Aziraphale turns out to be. He slips from the throne to the floor and slithers over to where he's positioned a stone table just below a window at the proper angle that, especially in the morning, an inspiring shaft of light is typically illuminating the surface. After a beat, he hears Aziraphale following, and by the time he winds his way up the leg to coil on the surface, the hero is already squinting down at the parchment lying there, where the seven tasks have been listed. 1. Fetch a fruit red as blood and hard as stone. 2. Retrieve the honest queen's mirror. 3. Gather a pose of Circe's remorse. 4. Rescue the chalice of redemption. 5. Gain the favor of the bridge guard. 6. Fetch a skein of wolf sheep's wool. 7. Receive a blessing from the chameleon wizard. These are the seven mystical tasks, Crowley whispers theatrically. Aziraphale tilts his head at the list and then produces a pair of small gold-rimmed reading glasses from one of the pouches at his belt and perches them ridiculously on the end of his nose. Crowley is simultaneously charmed and questioning how long in a tooth this hero must be if his near vision is starting to fail him. Hmm, 
I don't see any enchantments on the parchment itself, Aziraphale murmurs, lifting the paper from the table for a closer look, and turning it about as he raises the glasses up and down a few times as he does so. Should there be? Crowley asks, tone faintly indignant despite himself. Well, no, the hero concedes, gracing him with an apologetic look as he takes the glasses off and folds the arms down one-handed into his right palm. This list is just so shockingly straightforward. I thought there might be a hidden puzzle or a secret meaning. Ah, Crowley says, twigging at last that the glasses must reveal enchantments and also feeling retroactive chagrin over leaving the cryptic instruction writing to a ruthlessly practical witch who viewed the task as a glorified shopping list. He suspects it comes from Anathema's deep-seated loathing for riddles, owing to her grandmother Agnes's obsession with them. Now there is a woman who can write a proper set of needlessly cryptic instructions. So you know how to fulfill all of the tasks? Oh, yes. I'll need to send some inquiries about the current whereabouts of the chalice and the mirror. Those sort of artifacts tend to change hands over time, you see. But I know where to go for the rest. He rolls up the parchment with an efficiency that speaks of long practice, and trades the glasses for a short scroll tube from his pouch to tuck the list into. Well, bully for him, then. Crowley isn't sure why he's feeling annoyed by how unruffled this posh bastard is by the task list. It is absolutely because when Anathema wrote out her prize, he'd been grateful Serpent Aspect Dark Fay didn't have sweat glands. The witch is downright mercenary. The faster Anathema gets her list fulfilled, the faster he gets his own human body. He should be feeling glad that he might get through all seven tasks with just one hero. Nevertheless, he's feeling irked enough that he can't help needling the man. I'm so glad to hear, he says circularly. Should I expect to be freed from my curse within a fortnight? Aziraphale blanches and clasps his hand fretfully in front of his belly. Oh, my apologies if I've given the wrong impression. I don't mean to set your hopes too high. Knowing where to go is honestly a trifling. These tasks will take quite some time and no small amount of luck and effort to complete. He offers a small, anxious smile. But I do believe they're within my ability. So if you're amenable, I'd be more than happy to help you complete this quest and relieve you of your curse. Crowley bobs his head in affirmation. I'd offer to shake on it, but... He quips, before thinking better of it. To his surprise, Aziraphale snorts a small laugh that he tries to disguise as a cough. Yes, given the circumstances, I think a verbal agreement will suffice. With another stiff-looking bow... Aziraphale places his right hand over his heart and says formally, I, Aziraphale, messenger of Haven, pledge my services to you, Prince Anthony of Hellion. 
and solemnly vow to do my utmost to free you from your curse. Crowley feels an uneasy prod of conscience at the pretty woe. It's not like the air shimmers with magical intent, or he thinks the gods are listening and will smite the poor bastard if he doesn't deliver, but he just sounds so true and earnest. The dumb sort didn't even include any stipulations about the reward in the woe, like it didn't even occur to him to doubt Crowley will hold up his hand of the bargain. I, Prince Anthony, solemnly accept your pledge, brave hero, he replies. He is certainly not feeling guilty enough to make any more specific woes of his own, unless forced. Luckily for him, and unluckily for the daft pool grinning down at him, it doesn't seem like the hero's suspicious enough to force anything. Right, well, Aziraphale says, tucking his hands behind his back and rocking back on his heels. Shall we be off? Absolutely.